as I listen to the announcements, I suspect you'd rather have a puppet show. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could provide one, um, but I can't. So we'll see what we can do for, with the talk. So I'm very happy to be here with you this evening and to come over from Santa Cruz. Gil and I plot this with... Um, we try to plot this with some regularity and then it keeps stretching out and being long gaps. And on my way here tonight, I thought it's been such a long gap, maybe they've moved to their new quarters and I don't even know it. But I guess you haven't moved yet. Good. So, one of my favorite Tibetan teachings is that everyone in the universe around you is enlightened but one and you know who that is <laughs> and they're all doing what they're doing in order to help you wake up and this particular teaching made me giggle when I first heard it and then one day I thought well I'll just start trying it on and see how it goes and I realized as I dealt with various nice and not so nice people in my day that it wasn't such an easy teaching. In fact, it's really a very stringent and strong teaching. But that question that that teaching raises is always there. Who is your teacher today? And I don't mean the person sitting up in front of you on some platform, but who is it in your everyday life that the person that you dealt with in your relationship, in your family, in your work today, who was your teacher? In the story of the Buddha, which I suspect most of you know at least the bare outlines of, and some of you probably know it quite well. If you remember, he lived a fairly protected kind of childhood in a royal household. One of the mythic stories of his birth says that it was prophesied that he would either be a great world king or he would be a Buddha, both of which were pretty big deals. But his daddy was a king and had some thought that being a world king would really be the most beneficial and the most realizable thing for his son. And so he put a lot of energy into trying to make that happen. But after 29 years of being quite protected, things began to move a little bit in the Buddha's mind and he began to have some interest in what was it that lay outside of this protected existence? So probably this is a story that all of us can relate to one way or another. If we didn't have a protected childhood, perhaps there's been some other way in which we've kept ourselves somewhat um, protected from seeing things. And so he went out. And when he went out with his charioteer into town, he saw what are known as the four heavenly messengers. He saw someone who was sick and someone who was old. He saw a dead person 
And every time he would see one of these, he was completely blown away. It was like, what is this? He'd never seen what happened to the body as it ages and begins to sag and wrinkles and does all of that. And he hadn't seen, according to the myth, someone who was ill and all of the ravages that can happen to the body when you're ill. And he hadn't seen that huge change that comes when someone dies. And he said to his companion, what is this? And is this going to happen to me? And the answer, of course, is, yeah, it happens to everyone. And then he saw the fourth of the heavenly messengers walking along through this town, through the people who were ill and walking by the person who was dead and along with the people who were old was this monk dressed in his robes, very serene countenance, obviously not shaken by these other events that the Buddha was so stirred by. So these four events, the person who was sick, the person who was old, the person who was dead, and the monk are known as the four heavenly messengers. And so we can think of them as these are agents of awakening. These are messengers that help us wake up. And they come for all of us. Every person here has had some contact, some experience with these heavenly messengers. And they certainly don't come because we choose them. And we don't con they don't necessarily come when they're convenient. They just come. And they come in all kinds of challenges and changes in our lives. And frequently our question is just the same as it was as the Buddhist. Can this happen to me? Is this is this really going on? I talked a bit about this with the singles group up at Spirit Rock last week and it, re it brought to mind my own memories of a time probably huh, 20 odd years ago when my first marriage was coming to an end and I had married quite young and, um, and married at a time in my life when I really believed that it was not alright to get divorced and, and early enough, I married the first time in 1964, so that wave, big wave of divorces that happened in the 70s and 80s hadn't begun yet. So as the marriage began to hit very shaky ground and that prospect began to arise in my mind, I was so surprised. It's like, I, not me. This doesn't happen to me, not my marriage. And, and just complete disbelief that such a thing was possible. And it was, in its own way, a heavenly messenger, a teacher. And so you've all had them. You've had marriages that have hit a difficult place, if not ended, or relationships that have hit a difficult place or ended, or some kind of shift in your work world, or some kind of shift in your health, or someone died, 
or you got a diagnosis that was a little difficult and maybe raised the question of your own mortality. All of these kinds of things that come. I recently spent three weeks taking care of my 85-year-old mother who is very, very frail after a series of strokes. This was so my 85-year-old father, who's not so frail, could go off on an, a dig with Earthwatch in Mallorca. I <laughs> <laughs> got both ends of the health spectrum in my family. And it felt like an extended visit with the heavenly messengers, you know, sitting there with this woman whose body, she weighs 85 pounds. You know, there's almost nothing left of her and she has really bad osteoporosis, so it's all kind of bent and twisted. And, and her mind is quite diminished because of the strokes, although there's also still some clarity there. She certainly knew who I was and why I was there. And just sitting day after day with the diminishment of her being, which certainly also raised the question of the end of my own being because it was quite sobering to realize that in 26 years I will be her age and I will be his age too. I'm hoping I'll be on the dig in Mallorca, but um, who knows, you know, we, we don't know. And, and the question sort of came for me again, is this going to happen to me? Could this happen to me? And yeah, it can happen to me. When the Buddha saw these heavenly messengers, he went back to his home and he packed up a few things and he said goodbye to his went and said saw his wife who was sleeping and his son and then he left. It's an unsettling kind of thing for some of us to consider, but it wasn't so uncommon in his day. And he left to go off to try to find the answers to these questions of, well, what, what is this? What is this life all about? And wanting some kind of waking up, some kind of enlightenment, some kind of seeing into the truth of our being. And so he entered the life of a renunciate, of a monk, shaved his head, left his royal clothes, wore robes, and went into the forest. So in a sense, he turned toward the fourth of those heavenly messengers. He, there was something that he saw in the face of that monk that he wanted, and he wanted to find out if he could learn some of that for himself. Now this, I think, is a hard thing for us to swallow, this place of renunciation. It's not one of your real popular early 21st century words. You know, we don't talk about it a lot and you don't hear about it a lot. And the understanding that in some way renunciation is required for freedom. Letting go is required for freedom. And that freedom, liberation, nibbana even, if you want to go there, is not about control, and it's not about getting what we want, and it's not about pretending that some things in our lives don't exist. And so, 
you know, I look around the room, and I suspect that not too many of you are about to shave your heads and say goodbye to your families or your work and put on robes and go off and do that particular form of renunciation. And the question comes, I think, for all of us, how do we, as householders, as lay people, as men and women with jobs and children and partners and homes and dogs and cats and all of those things, the automobiles, all of those things that go with our lives, how do we do renunciation? So these heavenly messengers come and um, they wake us up and they remind us that we need to let go of different things in our lives. And I want to remind you, these are heavenly messengers. The Buddha didn't call them the bad news boys, you know. These are the heavenly messengers. So there's something really, really important in these very difficult events that can very profoundly help us with our waking up. And each one of us needs to look at where is it that we need to let go. While I was with my mother, I could see this person who doesn't have any spiritual practice, who is being forced. It's like life is peeling her little fingers off, you know, one at a time, and then she grabs on again, and then it does it all over again. And it's being a very, very difficult struggle for her to move into this place in her life where she's very, very helpless, really. There are not too many things left that she can do. And, you know, she... I used to call myself the control queen of the Western world. And she was one of the places where I learned some of what I did as the control queen of the Western world. And, you know, one of, one of the favorite family stories about her is, is how is it that you load the dishwasher just right? <laughs> and she's been known to go back in after one of us has loaded it and reload it so it's just right. And now... You know, she can not very often stand unaided and her body doesn't work so well and she doesn't always have full control of her bladder and, and so it's all slipping away, all that control, one thing at a time. So the question for each one of you is where are you attached? Where are you attached? to start really looking at that. Jack, in one of his early books, the one that used to be called Living Buddhist Masters, I think it's now called Living Dharma because most of them died. And so in the first, in the first chapter of that book, he says all of Buddhist teaching can be summed up in two words, let go. You don't have to read any of those suttas if you don't want to now. You know what's in them. 
in a way. Let go, let go. And Ajahn Sumedho, in another teaching that I've always loved, says you should be like an earthworm who knows only two words. Let go, let go, let go. And to make it your mantra. And each of us has, we have so many places. Now you could ask yourself, what is it that you take to a retreat at Spirit Rock that you have to have? Coffee? Chocolate? Your favorite pillow? You know, your special blanket? You know, those kinds of things. We all have them. We all have them. I've been to, I've had my little thing of coffee on many retreats, I will confess. You know, or that place where you say, well, I am a person who, and then you fill in the blank. I am a person who always runs five miles a day. Or I am a person who can't miss my yoga class every week. Or I am a person who wants to have a certain kind of music in my life or who wants to read a book every couple of weeks. Whatever it is that you use to describe yourself, to create an identity that you're attached to and that I'm attached to. Because those are the places where we can begin to think about letting go. You might be able to do a retreat without your sack of Pete's dark French roast, you know. <laughs> you just might be able to do it. Where did I put my books? So let me read you this passage from a teacher whose name is Ashvagosha. And um, if I can find it. Got to mark it. Oh dear. Sorry about this. If I don't find it in a minute, we'll skip it. Ashvagosha says that it is possible to find a way to live your life in a way that creates renunciation in an everyday householder life, that you do not need to shave your head and to go, as he says in this passage that I can't find, into the life of homelessness. And so he gives some suggestions about things that you could consider as you're thinking about how do I do renunciation as I'm looking for freedom in my householder life. And he says the first thing that you can look at is the centrality of self. That place that I was just pointing toward where the I, me, mind place is right in the middle of your awareness and where everything kind of comes and goes through that particular point. It's like you're the sun in the center of the planetary system. It all rotates around you. And that's what's most important. And beginning to let go of that, beginning to step aside from that, beginning to disidentify from those places where we're attached is one of the first steps in renunciation. Uh, 
I was just thinking that when I was at Amravati a couple of years ago, I spent a, a, oh, about 10 days or two weeks with um, some time at Amravati with both monks and nuns and then down at the monastery in Hartridge with just a community of nuns that were living there then. And I was quite interested to pay attention to the training of the young nuns. Off and on over the years, I've wondered why it was that I hadn't done that, mostly because I got married too early in life, I think. And one of the things I noticed was how much their training consists of being present in community without taking up very much space. And so the young nuns mostly didn't jump into conversations and they didn't say, well, I think, and you know, that kind of thing. And they sat and they listened and they didn't speak so very often unless they were spoken to. Now, you know, that might make the hairs rise on the back of your neck, I don't know. But I was watching it particularly because my sense was it was a training in letting go of the centrality of self. And that a lot of the early monastic training is that. Now, nobody's going to ask you to do that in your lives. But there are ways sometimes when you can sit back and not put the I, me, mine place quite so much in the foreground of your awareness and see what happens if um, you let yourself not take up so much space. It can be pretty interesting, actually. Ashvagosha also recommends the cleansing of the heart. And I suspect that this practice of letting go and working with that mantra of let go, let go, let go is very much a practice of the cleansing of the heart because it's a practice that leads us directly into the practice of forgiveness. Forgiveness is, as I understand it, a practice of keeping the heart open even when we've been hurt and wounded. It's not an easy practice. It's a practice that sometimes takes years and years and years before we can get the heart to be willing to open up again when we even think about someone else, let alone be in their presence. And of course, sometimes it's not so wise to be in their presence. And so we can each look as we consider this practice of this agenda of renunciation for where is it that my heart is closed? Where is it that my heart is holding on to some angry and bitter place that I haven't been willing to even consider the idea that maybe, possibly, someday, way out there in the future, I could open it up again and let it um, be a bit softer. So to go back to my mother, I was quite fascinated because she's mostly a present moment being right now. She doesn't have any short-term memory. And so she has memories from way back, some, and she has the present moment. She mostly sits in her bed and looks out the window watching the birds and smokes cigarettes. <laughs> and um, it bothered me at first until I realized she would say to me, Mary, have you seen the red-winged blackbirds flying out there in the backyard? They're so beautiful. And about the third day she said that, 
I realized she's in the very present moment. She doesn't remember that she saw the red-winged blackbirds yesterday or this morning or last week. And she doesn't remember that she's been sitting there day after day after day. She's just now. And there's a kind of happiness that she can taste. Every now and then I thought, she sounds like somebody on retreat. You know? Just, have you seen the birds? And the other thing that was very interesting was that when we would have some little interaction that was painful, ten minutes later, it was gone. She'd forgotten that I'd done this thing that she didn't like. What she was still carrying around were the places where I've been inadequate ever since I was this big. Those were still there. So it was interesting. It was like forgiveness. It became very clear to me that forgiveness is time-related. Does that make sense to you? That there was a place when she was in the present moment, her heart just stayed open. The past didn't exist. It was gone. It was so lovely to be around that. So then Ashvagosha goes on to say to give up the thirst for pleasure. To give up that place where we have to have one more thing. It might be the Pete's coffee or it might be the car or it might be, you know, just one more book or whatever it is that we're always out there grabbing onto. Just one more thing. How many more? Th I just moved recently. And just seeing how much stuff was in my closet was utterly appalling. I would love to tell you that, you know, it diminished substantially in the move, but I didn't see that that really happened. And, you know, this place in us that is just always about more, that is so supported by our culture. You know, if something is slightly worn, Probably some of you, if I look around the room, there's enough of us who are older. You remember darning socks? No? Does anybody darn socks anymore? Maybe a few people here and there. Nobody darns socks. I picked up a fairly raggedy pair of pajamas of my mother's and said, would you like me to just get rid of these? Because we've just gotten some new ones. Oh, no, she said. I really like those. Please mend them for me. <laughs> So I did, you know, what else do you do? So you'll have to give up the thirst for pleasure. It's going to go. There's going to come a point at which grabbing on for more doesn't make any sense. I could see that for her it didn't make any more sense. It was much smarter to mend the pair of pajamas. And life is going to hand that one to you, one of those heavenly messengers, if you don't figure out for yourself ahead of time. So then the last thing that Ashvagosha recommends is the life of righteousness. So what he's saying is the, the next piece to this life of renunciation that you're creating for yourself is to live your life in a way that's careful and ethical. So that's really basically following the precepts, following these guidelines for your life that, that keep it um, moving along in a way that will bring freedom actually. If you, if you give your attention to the precepts and really integrate them in your lives, you'll find that in this very odd sort of paradoxical koan-esque way 
that by placing yourself within the structure of the precept and um, following it, there's actually more freedom in your life. And so, um, can I act in a way that's non-harming? What happens if I choose to do this instead of to do that so that I'm being more careful of the life and, and space of another being? Can I not take that which isn't offered to me? Can I be careful with my sexuality? Can I speak in a way that's non-harming? That's, that's such a good precept to work with for us as householders. Watching our speech and trying to find ways to speak in a way that's skillful and kind. These four heavenly messengers, these four agents of awakening, really are just that. And they so often guide us into a place of letting go and then into a place of much greater liberation. I think it's really important for us as householder practitioners to understand that this liberation that we're looking for when we listen to these heavenly messengers is not something that's out there someplace. It's not a gold star that someone's going to give you when you get to a certain place in your practice or a degree or any of those things that we, that happen in other arenas in our life. In every moment of your existence, there is a place of freedom which you can find and in which you can stand. In this very moment as you're sitting here, there is a place of freedom that you can find and in which you can stand. And when you are face to face with your difficult child, partner, boss, whatever, there is a place of freedom that you can find and in which you can stand. So that liberation is inherent in our being. And when we deeply understand that, then these heavenly messengers, I think, become, if anything, more provocative and more welcome because they really point us um, and juggle us and demand that we wake up to the freedom in any particular situation. So I really invite you to consider for yourselves, where do I need to let go now, in this moment? What do I need to let go of as I'm sitting here listening to this talk? What do I need to let go of? Where am I most attached in my life? What can I begin to work with now? Because my sense is that if we begin to do it now in our everyday lives when we're not quite at the edge, it becomes much easier when some of the bigger challenges come as we do, in fact, get older, get sick, and ultimately die. So 
I think that's enough from me, perhaps. And maybe, I have no idea. We have about 10 minutes before I'm told that you will all rise up in rebellion and walk out the door <laughs> or something. So maybe we have some time for some questions or comments or wonderings. Please don't be shy. Please. So when you talked about your mother's uh, pajamas, I thought about uh, there's a borderline between um, where is the attachment to the pajamas and where is the, you know, I don't need a new one. So sometimes it's hard to see. It is sometimes. It is. With her, I think it was actually I don't need a new one. But, um, I think the question was actually more the question for myself because if I had had a pair of pajamas that looked like that, I would have put them in the rag bag. And there I was taking little tiny stitches trying to find a place where I could root the button so it would stay on just a little longer. Um, so it's an interesting question more for me than it was about her, I think. Yeah. Please. Did you say greed seems not but, possible? I mean, greed, I mean, it seems like compromise seems impossible. There doesn't seem to be, like, I mean, there are small things I can do, but then where do I... I think it's... Where do I stop enjoying life? Right, right. I think it's really important to, to understand that there is, I think, very healthy attachment in life where we're connected to each other and where we deeply care about each other and where we're very involved in each other. I don't know, probably some of you know, there's a wonderful story about Ajahn Chah and his teacup. Do you know the teacup story? And Ajahn Chah, every, even, every afternoon, would have his tea in a favorite cup. And he really loved that particular teacup. You know how that one is. And so one of his students finally said, Ajahn Chah, how can this be? Aren't you attached to this teacup? And Ajahn Chah picked the teacup up and he said, well, he said, I consider this cup to be already broken. So, I think there's a profound teaching in there. I mean, to look, for example, at your children or your partner and to consider them to be already dead, which they are, in a way, is a way of beginning to not hold on so tightly so that when impermanence comes in and change happens, we can allow that to happen. Or you look at your five-year-old and consider them already to be 
an adult and a parent or whatever it is that we need to do to understand that we don't get to hold on. It's not so much that we're connected in that way. It's where we get addicted, possessive, craving is a word that's frequently used. So it has that edge to it. Yeah? Does that help? Yeah. Please. I think that um, I'm, I'm holding on to my judgment a lot, particularly in these times. And uh, some days I just feel as if the whole world is ridiculous. Um, I'm thinking about our political situation. I'm sure there are many people right, <laughs> right along with you. And I find this very, I think this is the hardest uh-huh. thing live with equanimity when you, when you feel there's so many things wrong in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. And um, the recommendation under those circumstances is to do metta practice. For all of those people that we love to hate, I'm sure there's several in particular that some of us could think of and um, and to see if there's a way where we don't have to I mean well we don't have to shut down the heart around them and it's challenging and it's great that you see it yeah I mean it's so easy to go around with a lot of judgment and not even to consider it remotely a problem so Mm. So how how do you um, balance having goals and aspirations and wanting to accomplish something mm-hmm. and and then letting go of outcomes, but continuing to kind of having certain aspirations and goals? Well. It's sort of like a teaching that I heard once about getting enlightened, right? If, if you have to get enlightened tonight, <laughs> or this retreat, or this year, and you really have to get enlightened, you're probably going to suffer a lot, right? And to have the intention that your practice is headed in that direction, and that that's where you would like to go is a profoundly important intention. Intention is actually key to practice. So having some sense of keeping, there's a line in Ryokan where he says, if you point your cart north and you want to go south, how will you arrive? You know? So you want to keep your cart kind of pointed in the same direction. If you go off course, it's not useful to beat yourself up, you know, so you kind of pick up and go, oh, okay, that's not getting me there. I think that's where the precepts are so helpful that way. It's like all of a sudden you realize, oh, my goodness, in the last 10 days, I've just, I've said so many difficult, nasty things, critical things or judgmental things or whatever. And and so that's a, it's like, that's where it's a guiding post. It says, oops, you're not headed, you know, you're headed some other direction. And so you bring yourself back. 
So you have the goals and the intentions and you're not attached to them. Yeah? Yeah. All right, whoops, one more, maybe. There's a 19-year-old who I, I knew who was killed last week in a bike crash. Mm. And, you know, there's a sense of just such tremendous injustice when something like that happens. I just, you know, I'm just angry. Mm hmm Hmm. It is unjust in a way. And... You know, it's that thing of, if you talk to somebody who works in an emergency room, you understand that all kinds of people die, babies die, kids die, teenagers die, young adults die, middle-aged people die, and old people die. They all, and it seems to happen a lot at all different ages, and we forget that. And I think there is a place, particularly if you know the person, where that sense of a life cut short feels very, very difficult. I don't know if there's any getting around it. No. And the circumstances that brought it to bear, I mean, it's certainly not, it's, it's in no way a Buddhist understanding that this is a kind of punishment or anything like that. So it's, it's always... When the Buddha teaches about karma, he says it's so complex, it's unthinkable. So all of the things that, you know, a, a culture that has cars that move too fast and not enough bike lanes and all of those kinds of things, you know, become part of it. Hmm. Was it someone you knew well? Not really. Yeah. Impermanence is sometimes very hard. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a good place to stop, a reminding of impermanence. So I thank you very much for your presence and your practice. Let's just sit and breathe together for a minute and just do a little bit of, of loving-kindness practice before we go out into the night. So let your attention come to your heart and breathe in and out through the heart. Notice what the state of your own being is, tired maybe at the end of a long day, a little frazzled from today or anxious about tomorrow. Just notice. And then in some way direct goodwill into your own being. It can be a simple phrase of kindness. May I be happy and peaceful. May I find that place of freedom in my life. Let your kindness then radiate out around the room to all of the people around you, in front of you and behind you to your right and to your left, perhaps with some sense of gratitude for the way in which we support each other's practice. 
May we all be happy and peaceful and may we all find freedom. And then let your kindness extend out into the night. First, perhaps towards people whom you know and love. And then extending it to all people, to all of the creatures of the earth and the air and the water. And then we gather up the merit from our practice this evening. And we offer this, we give it away for the benefit of all beings that all beings everywhere, in every realm, in every direction, that all beings may be happy, may be peaceful, and may be free. So thank you very much for being with me this evening.